Nurse.com is proud to be a sponsor of the Ask Nurse Alice podcast. As the premier destination for nursing knowledge and resources, Nurse.com supports your passion for healthcare with an unrivaled collection of tools, articles, and courses tailored for the nursing community. Get your daily dose of things you need to know for your nursing journey. Discover the world of nursing like never before with Nurse.com. Empower your practice, advance your career, and enrich your knowledge. Nurse.com. It's your nurse life all in one place. You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything nursing and healthcare related. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist, family nurse practitioner, and chief nursing officer at Nurse.org. And I want to start this episode by talking about how wonderful nurses are. I mean, we work really hard, we show up, we show out, and we do everything and anything we can for the patients. And in the most proverbial way, we will fight for our patients, right? Well, in some recent news, some nurses did literally just that. Um, You may have heard of a story uh, that recently a man was arrested for assaulting infants at an Odessa Regional Medical Center in Texas. Fortunately, there were nurses and therapists and other health workers there, but there were nurses who literally fought this man off as he was choking infants in a death grip, actually screaming out, die. And so, yes, these nurses actually put themselves in harm's way. I'm going to go and say what it is that they did and removed that man from choking these young defenseless infants. So, I mean, I know that's not the news line or the storyline that we heard. We just couldn't hear man allegedly chokes infants at Odessa hospital, but really it was the nurses. Now, mind you, the nurses end up did calling 911 and police officers arrived and they were able to tackle the man and take him down. But in the interim, before they arrived, there were nurses who actually saved these infants from being choked to death by this young man. So I wanted to talk about that Aggressive patients, aggressive and violent patients in the workplace. Now, I work in the emergency room, so perhaps it feels more common to me, although it shouldn't, right? That sounds so bad. That sounds so bad. It's like I'm accepting of this and it should not be, right? The potential for assaultive behavior can occur with patients, family members, and visitors anywhere in the healthcare system. So let me first start off with some facts. Let's talk about the extent of this problem. So I went to the CDC and there were some stats there that showed in 2020, healthcare and social assistant workers overall had an incidence rate of 10.3 out of 10,000 full-time workers for any injuries resulting from assaults and violent acts by other persons. Okay, 10.3 out of 10,000. Now check this out. The rate for nursing and personal care facility workers was 21.8, nearly double, double guys. You hear that? Now, this data also included RNs and LPNs and in the major population-based study, and it showed that a rate of physical assaults at 13.2 per 100 nurses per year and a rate of 38.8 
per 100 nurses per year for non-physical violent acts like threats, sexual harassment, verbal abuse. That's crazy. That shows you right there that we as nurses, now listen, let me back up. I know some of y'all didn't even need those stats to know how pervasive a problem that this is. It really is. Now, some of y'all might be lucky and you've never had this instance happen to you, but I know you've all seen that screaming patient, that screaming family member who's like getting heated, getting heated, talking louder, starting to throw stuff, getting upset, and sometimes full out blown, like starts to become violent. And so what happens? We call it code gray. We call it code silver. And for those of you who just may not be aware of what those things are. A code gray is used when there's a violent or aggressive patient in the hospital. And usually when this is called overhead, there's a highly trained hospital response team that of staff that are called to help resolve the aggression in the hospital. They're called the code gray team. As I said that I had to think about, it, I'm like, what is a training for our code gray? That's something I really want to ask at work. I know they call it code gray and I know security comes, but as far as highly trained individuals coming to help de-escalate the situation. I don't know what that training involves. Might be, listen, might be security. That might be security. And I just don't know. But as a, as a nurse, I know, especially in the ER, we are required to do MAV training, management of assaulted behavior, something like that. Some type of training around aggressive patients. But anyways, there's a code gray that's called and heaven forbid. Well, we already don't like code grays because those people can be very violent and anything in your patient room can become a weapon at any given moment. But if there is indeed a weapon that is involved or included, they quickly call that a code silver. A code silver is when we call what we call when there is an aggressive and violent patient and there's a weapon involved. For the most part, you can think of a gun, a knife or something like that. But again, anything in your hospital room can quickly become a weapon, just so you know. Let's go back to the story. But in this story, it was... Some stories say that it's a man, some say he's a teen, 18. So I guess you're still a teenager, but you're old enough to be considered an adult. Uh, was at the hospital because his girlfriend was in labor and having a baby, something to that effect. And this gentleman uh, was acting very oddly, was having unwanted interaction with the nurses and sh- showed to be somewhat of a shady character. And then, of course, he went around starting to choke babies. Okay, who does that? trying to break into a nursery and choke defenseless, innocent babies, especially when he was about to be a father. That's crazy. It said that he was pacing. So there might very well be some mental health issues. I don't know what that hospital system or process is for screening visitors and, you know, having family members stay during childbirth. I don't know. But I know for the most part, no one should be busting into the nursery and having access to other infants and especially getting close enough where they can choke them. That right there, like, What's going on with y'all security system? Like whose badge access did he have to like to do that, right? And I don't know. I don't know this hospital to know how they're set up, right? But anyways, to imagine a young infant getting choked and you're the nurse, your instinct has got to kick in. And I don't know if these ladies were mothers, aunts, or you know, things like that, but I know they were some damn good nurses and they intervened. They worked to break his chokehold on these infants who were turning blue, as I said. So apparently he had choked them enough to cut off some form of circulation, which was causing enough hypoxia to change colors. Now that's bad. And when these kind of things happen, again, code gray, code silver, whatever the case may be, right? They're calling an emergency response. Now I'm not sure if the nurses in this area get uh, the training 
for to manage assaultive behaviors. Guys, we've been seeing a lot these last years with, you know, people like we already knew work life workplace violence was an issue before the pandemic. And it seems like during the pandemic and even up until now, it feels like it's gotten worse. Like the public is mad. The public has there are some cases of mental health issues that are creeping in. And then you take that with crisis, times of loss, so much change, like, and people who've not been able to have access to quality health care. Like there's a lot of people who are like, like who are just ready to, like this close to snapping, they're ready to snap. And some of them do snap and they snap in our hospital environments where, again, there's usually some type of high risk issue going on, some type of urgency, something that's heightened their response, put them on edge, cause anxiety, stress. And so sometimes that's enough to topple them over. Like, and they just lose it. They lose it and they go crazy on the staff. Now, first of all, we don't deserve to be treated in that way at all. But I also will say, sometimes when you have someone who's already on edge, who's like this close to losing it, and you put them in a situation that snaps them, couple that with a long wait and healthcare providers who are ex- maybe explaining things that aren't necessarily very easy easy to understand or things that are that are easy to say or to a patient, like, you know, your, your family member is really sick. Like, I don't know. Like, there's too many moving factors there that create the perfect storm for somebody to snap and pop off. In the emergency room, we see a lot of that. And the reason why we see a lot of that is because of the the flow, the patient flow. We don't really have an expected patient flow. Like they're not just trickling in every 30 minutes, an hour. Like there's no smooth system. It's not like I can say like in the, like if on the floor, when it's like, oh, you have an admission coming, like, hold on, the room's not ready. I can't do this. Like the patient just can't come. Well, that's not the case in the emergency room. Patients come, they get triaged, right? We evaluate what they're there for. And based on the ESI index, we'll give them a score. It's one through five, right? One meaning you're like on death's bed. We got to see you ASAP. Five's like, oh, you can wait. Maybe you don't even need to be seen here. Maybe you could just see you real quick in the triage room, give you something. You can be on your way. Like, like there's a scale. That's not what this episode is about. But we triage you. And then based on the urgency or severity of your illness, we will call you in the back and see you. So that's why sometimes ER waits are long. We got a lot of patients that come at, a, at the same time and we have to triage you based on your illness. And if you're someone who's not as sick and then there's code stroke that comes in, you're going to get bumped because the code stroke is going to take priority over your illness. So this causes long waits, which can also frustrate and make patients angry too. And then top that, we have situations where these things are unexpected, unplanned, out of the blue. So you can imagine how the stakes are really high. People are in shock. People are in immediate grief, unexpecting uh, that today's emergency was going to take place. Who knew that there was going to be a major five-car pileup accident and three people were going to die on impact? Like who knew? Who was prepared for that to happen to their 16-year-old daughter on the way to high school? Like who knew that there was going to be a shooting at a particular school on a given day when you sent your, you know, you kissed your wife goodbye and she went to go work and she's a teacher. Like there are things that happen that are way beyond our control. And you take that and you couple that with so many other moving factors, people can get really upset, irate. And so the ER can many times be a very volatile environment. Doesn't make an excuse. Doesn't mean that it's okay for violence to happen. Does not at all. And then also let's top it off with 
we're also getting patients of all walks of life. Some people, you know, affluent business people who are there for illness. We have some people who are homeless. We have some people who are members of rival gangs and they were shooting and stabbing one another. Like there's so many different things that we can see. There's a little grandma from the sniff that comes in and she's septic, like so many different things. So we're seeing all walks of life come in. And because of that, because of the nature of the environment, because of the potential for there to be violence in the workplace, we as emergency room staff usually go through some type of training that revolves around the management of assaultive behavior. And there's actually certifications that we we get for those. So if I can just describe this a little bit. So like working in a hospital, a doctor's office, or any type of medical sitting, you're going to deal with tens to hundreds of people every day. And often you'll encounter people in the midst of, like I mentioned, these high stress situations. And sometimes that stress, when it comes to a surface, patients lose it, like I said. So we go through management assaultive behavior uh, training, which is a certification course that teaches individuals the skills they need to identify and to prevent and mitigate assaultive behavior in professional settings. So it's offered by a number of different accreditations, but in the class, we learn how to de-escalate a violent patient with MAB techniques. Now, there are other courses out there with different acronyms, different names. I do MAB, so that's what I know. So that's what I'm talking about now. But to bring it back to the nurses that had to fight off the assaultive man who was choking the infants, I wonder, like in the nursery, the NICU labor and delivery, do they, I don't know if you got, if they do this type of training. I imagine that there's some information about it, but is there ever, there probably will be now, right? Training, annual training, quarterly training that prepares them to handle assaultive patients. I can, I have to imagine now, I mean, listen, I'm not the L&D nurse. I'm not the NICU nurse. I'm not the nursery nurse. So I don't really know that environment, but I can imagine that there's, well, we like to think those are happy environments. I have to imagine that there are some upsets and disappointments and some very volatile relationships that present, I don't know, a husband and a wife, an ex-boyfriend come in. Like, I don't know what's happening, right? There could be a lot of situations, a lot of things that can happen. But at the end of the day, we're worried about patients who are escalating their voices into something that could potentially be violent. And patient violence is a very unfortunate risk in the healthcare field. And so it's important that we do training like this to help us identify and to de-escalate potentially violent situations with patients and family members. And so so one of the things that we do is identify the signs of escalation. So it's incredibly common for patient violence to come out of nowhere, right? Didn't see that coming, not at all. But sometimes there are warning signs. And knowing these signs can help us to keep at bay or simmer down a situation before it becomes a big major issue And some of the early signs of escalation is yelling, right? Get that patient, where's the doctor? I've been here for so many hours. What's happening? They took my blood. No one said anything. I did an MR, I did a CAT scan and what's happening? I'm still in pain. This, like they start to yell, they raise their voice. And this is typically one of the first indicators that a patient is frustrated or angry. And sometimes even before we get yelling, we can look at body language and we can look at face. We can see people huffing and puffing. That could be a sign. And body language, listen, body language is real important too. They can be in a, like a closed off or defiant posture. So like moments before a patient turns violent, their posture may change. They may be closed off or defiant. They may be like 
pumping their fists or like like they're grabbing something or like swinging in the air or they have a wide stance or they're trembling or like they're like making a face, biting their lip, like shaking their head, looking angry, like scrunching their nose and everything. Like, listen, got to look at that. We got to look at that posture. We got to look at those body language. Okay. And then also they can be hitting or throwing objects. So I've seen people throw a bedpan, throw an emesis basin, like yank the call light out the wall, like upset, frustrated, kick over a, a bedside commode. Like, oh, that's gross, right? A full bedside commode. So the first outward expression of violence can be often directed towards inanimate objects rather than people. So they might not have thrown anything at you, but if they're like being cruel and mean and abusive to the furniture through the, through the, to the side table, like they're slamming things, like, hey, that's a sign. A patient could, you know, begin to throw or hit things around you. And there's a very strong chance that that person is going to turn violent next. I've seen that. Definitely have seen that in the emergency room several times. And so when this begins to happen, when we begin to notice this, it's going to be real important that we take heed and we actually kind of activate a system. Let the charge nurse know. Let, you know, at this point, I mean, you have to use judgment. You, you know, do you call a code gray at this moment? Maybe not, but maybe there are things that you can do to at least protect yourself and protect others and set up the environment or the situation where if something's going to go down, it ain't going to go down too bad. Or you're a prepare. Like, listen, somebody go grab some, grab some Ativan, Cyprexia, the, and I'm going to go grab the restraints. Like, just in case, just in case, let the provider know like, hey, Mr. So-and-so is acting a little odd. He's pacing, which was the case, this young man, teen man, whatever you want to call him. He was doing that. He was pacing oddly in the hallway. So that is something that was in the report. So it sounds like his behavior was already escalating. There were signs that someone right. And so when something like that happens, what do you do? Well, like I mentioned, you got to put things in motion. You got to make sure, you know, start securing the environment, start securing people around them, make sure there aren't sharp objects and things like that right out in the open for the patients to see, which is why we really should keep our carts locked. I know we keep them unlocked for easy access so we can go in and out of them, but those carts should be locked, especially those with like needles, syringes or anything like that. Anything can become a weapon at the drop of a dime. And so the next step when someone is becoming aggressive and we're worried about it escalating is that we need to deploy proper de-escalation techniques. Now, once you've identified the signs of escalation, it's time to take action. So some of the things that you need to do when you have a potentially violent patient in front of you, like we've all had that patient yelling and screaming, like, what the F is going on? And why is it taking so long? Where's the doctor? I demand this. Where's the doctor? Right. And it's just like the doctor was there like maybe 30 minutes ago and they're in with the code stroke or code blue or like the doctor ain't coming right now. Sorry. Like, obviously you're not going to say that, but in your mind, you know already that it's going to be impossible not that you don't want to meet this individual's needs or request, you do, but sometimes situationally you can't. And because of that, that can escalate situations. So the most important thing that you can do initially is to stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. This will help you make the best choices possible and it will help diffuse, hopefully diffuse any anger the patient might be feeling. Hopefully they can channel some of that calmness that you're modeling for them, help them, you know, Try relaxing your muscles and speaking with an even tone to give them appearance of calmness and gain exposure. 
And I think that's one of the most important things. People oftentimes want to feel heard, want to be seen, want to feel like they're what they're saying is being taken seriously. So some of the things that I do is I speak very calmly. It's like, Mr. Jones, I'm so sorry. I know you're frustrated. I know you've been here a while. You have some outstanding tests and we're waiting for the results. I know I would be frustrated as well. However, uh, the doctor is with another patient right now in an emergency, but I'm going to work with trying to get the information you need as soon as possible. If you could please just give me some time. Can I get you something to drink? Can I, you know, would you like a a turkey sandwich? That's all we got in the ER, y'all. Can I get you a turkey sandwich and some juice? Would you like a blanket? Um, Is there someone I can call for you? Trying to make them feel calm, trying to make them feel a little more at ease. If I can do that, then hopefully that will keep them at bay a little bit longer. Maybe it'll provide some clarification so it will hold off their escalating aggression, but you got to stay calm. Because this is real easy, y'all. Let me tell you this. Because we're humans. We're human, We're nurses, but we're human. Don't start none, won't be none. That's really what I'm thinking. But because I'm a professional, I know that I have to speak to you professionally. And so I can't necessarily clap back the way I normally would had this been another issue. But, you know, and for those of you who don't know what clap back is, good. Don't worry about it. But what I'm saying is, and this is what is so distressing for us as healthcare providers. People can talk to us shitty crisscross sideways and say the most effed up things and use the most explicit words with us. And to a certain degree, we're expected to tolerate it. Now, depending on your leadership, they got your back and they're not going to put up the shenanigans either. But I've been in many situations where I have been expected to tolerate it or at least not take, obviously not take it personal, although it feels very personal sometimes because some of the stuff that they say, but to be like, stay, remain calm, remain objective. Don't add insult to injury. Don't say anything back to them that could trigger them even more. But here they are talking to me sideways and crisscross. That is very like dissatisfying. That's a big dissatisfier, but you got to stay calm. Sometimes I have said, and listen, I have said this, I've said Mr. Jones, I know you're tired. I know you're upset, but please, please do not talk to me that way. I am being so respectful with you. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to help you. Please do not talk disrespectfully to me. And then if that don't work, then child, I don't know, it might be something different. But for all intents and purposes, for those who are listening, I want to say be calm, right? But some of y'all know what time it is. Anyways, so, okay, stay calm. Um, also to deescalate. Make sure you have backup. You got to tell your your buddies, a staff, a fellow staff nurse, a charge nurse, a tech, a somebody. Let somebody else know in on what's going on because the more health professionals in a situation makes it less likely that the patient will react violently. So have some backup. Let them know. Maybe you bring someone else in with you. Now, be, care- be careful with that because if you, that can also challenge them and they'll it'll escalate them more. So you got to use some good judgment here. But- in the event that a patient does still resort to violence, even with you know another person there with you or several healthcare professionals around to subdue them, that patient might resort to violence even quicker because like, oh shoot, I'm outnumbered. Let me try to get my lick in. I've seen it. I have seen it in the emergency room, um, which is why we have to go through this training and we do drills. But you should have backup. And it's not to intimidate the patient. It's is to show a united force and hopefully 
if everyone's calm, everyone's relaxed, but just the sheer numbers, hopefully that patient might look and say, oh shoot, I'm outnumbered. I'm not even going to try it. All right. Show that you're listening. That's also very important. Um, Often patients simply want to just vent and be heard because, you know, and I'm using the ER as an environment, but again, to go back to the example where we first started this episode about the staffing at the Odessa hospital, nursery, NICU, labor and delivery, those kind of areas, they just as much are prone to violence and aggression from patients just as someone on a stroke unit, just like someone on a pediatric unit, in the observation unit, heck, in GI, I don't know, like wherever there are patients, there's the potential for aggression. There is. I don't think there's any area in the hospital where you're not, where there's like zero potential for this to happen. Yeah, I don't know. If you think of one, you let me know. But something else you can do to deescalate patients. And I'm pretty sure some of these things seem intuitive. So I'm pretty sure that the nurses, when they were uh, dealing with that gentleman who was choking the babies, I'm pretty sure they instituted a lot of these things, probably not even knowing that they did, but I'm pretty sure they did these things. Um, But also they show that they're listening because patients want to be heard. They want to be seen. And in the ER environment, sometimes I hate to say we don't got time, but we don't got time for the long winded story. I want to hear you, but because of the nature of the beast, because of the emergencies that are coming in left and right, left and right, I may not always have the time, not because I don't want to, but just because I just can't come need to be present at another emergency, but they want to be listened or heard. So I like to do this. I, I call this managing up. I like to manage up when I feel like, oh shoot, this person, this test results still ain't back or this person, like if it were me, would I be upset? Would I be tired? Would I be frustrated if this were me? Let me go ahead and manage up. So before the patient even can come and ask me, I'll circle back and say, hey, Mr. Jones, I'm just checking on you. Uh, I know you had blood work done and you had a CT done. I'm going to double check to see that the results are in and I'll uh, make sure that the provider gets to it. I don't believe they've gotten to it, but we haven't forgotten about you. Just want to let you know, is there anything I can get you in the interim while we wait? Just wanted to do a check-in, let you know you haven't been forgotten. Is there anything I can do for you while I'm here? Like, listen, sometimes if you just do that, they'll feel like, okay, they haven't forgotten me. I'm on their radar. It's just taking hella long. But when you do this, you must be attentive. You can't just be like typing on a computer and they're behind you and you're just talking out loud. You really should look at them, you know, kind of eye to eye level in a caring way, in a caring tone, in a non-threatening body posture. I know it sounds like a lot of instructions, but listen to them and nod your head as if you're listening. Like, okay, I hear you. I see you. And keep your hands visible, making sure that, you know, your posture and your facial expressions look like you're engaged and that they have your 100% undivided attention. And then also ask, don't demand. As you're verbally communicating with your patient, ask him or her questions. You know, you get more, they say you get more bees with honey. The way you ask for something can make or break whether you get it or not. So if you say things in a kinder, caring voice, instead of being accusatory or um, skeptical in your questioning and your tone and your technique and your choice of words, that can also help deescalate. Because I'll say one thing, and I'll use this example, like, for example, when patients come in and let's say they're having a sickle cell crisis and they're having um, like lots of pain and they need pain medication, one might say, you know, you've mentioned that you've had a sickle cell crisis before. What makes the pain better for you? Instead of saying, oh, you've had this before. What do you always get? Delighted? Like, I don't know, just even the way the words and the way I said it can be very accusatory and that can 
contribute to an interaction that escalates. Because I would be kind of mad too if somebody did that to me. Oh my gosh, I'm almost embarrassed that I'm sharing this story. But I'm gonna share this story, y'all. Okay, my son, he goes to the gym and he was working out, and in some weight thing, I don't know what happened, but he sliced his the skin near his knuckles, so it was all open, and so he had to go to the emergency room. So I had to leave work to meet him at the emergency room because his hand was, you know, it's all wrapped up, it's bleeding, it looks really bad from the outside from what I can see, and he's like in so much pain, he's like screaming. We go to the emergency room. Now, mind you, it's bandaged up, there's pressure applied, no airway, breathing, circulation, very young, high school, he's definitely injured and we need to see his his hand and, you know, get it sutured up, but he's not bleeding to death. Although to him, it feels like it, right? Because he's not a health professional, see? And this is why people can escalate because they don't recognize, they don't know what we know. And so me as a healthcare provider, even looking at him as his mom, I'm like, you are, you'll be okay. But to him, it was crisis, emergency, 911, call the surgeon, like I need help now, all hands on deck. So I had never seen my son this upset. He was like, why is it taking so long, mom? I'm bleeding. Look, I'm cut. Like, and he, I was like, hold on. Do I have the assaultive patient here? Is my, is my, is, is my son the one who's going to be the aggressive patient here? Like, no, sir, we're not going to do that. But I was watching him and I could see that he was getting visually upset. He was like, (sighs) and he was like pumping his fist. He was upset. He like didn't want to wait in the bed. He kept standing up, sitting down, standing up, sitting down. And then he started pacing. And I'm like, Lord, stop, sit down. They're going to think something's wrong with you. Just stop. And here I am trying to intervene and talk to the nurses. Like he would, they're like, how's your pain? He's like, it hurts really bad. I had to check him, y'all. Let me just say that. I said, we don't talk to adults like that. I understand you're injured, but we don't talk to adults like that. So here I am interfacing and mediating. But I literally watched, I could see how someone who I know is such a really good and kind kid, become an aggressive patient. Now, mind you, he wasn't wasn't trying to throw, hit anybody or anything like that. He was was just upset and frustrated that he, in his mind, was severely injured. He's like, I'm going to lose my hand. No, sir, you're not going to lose your hand. But to the patient, it's real. So I think that's really important for us to understand. So here my son is, he's pacing. And then like, I'm sitting down. I'm like, Lord, okay. And, you know, it was a long wait. We had a couple, there were like two coach strokes that came in while we were there. So it kept getting pushed off and pushed off. And I was explaining to him, he's like, yeah, but come on, mom. I was, they're leaving before me. They're leaving before me. And they, they came after me. Like, I, you know, it's interesting how people keep tabs on other people's business. I didn't realize that, but they do. They keep tabs on like who came in. And this, I had to explain to him that the ER, that is not the flow of the system. It's not first come, first serve. It's first come highest urgency that's get served. And so I'm explaining to him. And then let me, Lord, he sat there. He says, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm going to another hospital. I said, okay. I said, if you leave, you're going to have to go through this whole process again. And you're going to, you're going to have to wait. Your hand's going to be open for much longer. It might get infected. And then since he said he might lose his hands, since he said it, I just played in. I was like, and you might lose your hand. He's like, I don't care. I don't care. This is too long. I'm leaving. He went outside. And at this point, I'm just like, I cannot make him sit down because literally he's taller than me. And so, but I sat there. I'm like, we're not losing this patient bed. I'm not. I was like, he'll be back. Because I thought about it. He left. What was he going to do? What was he going to do? Nothing. And lo and behold, he got outside, got frustrated and realized 
nothing I could do. So he came back. And by the time he came back, the nurse, you know, the nurse came, gave him some, uh, looked at it. I guess I communicated to the nurse practitioner and had got some pain medications on board and was collecting supplies uh, for for him. You know, he had to have his hand x-rayed and then um, then they were going to likely suture it. Because when they looked at it, it didn't look very deep, but they still wanted to do an x-ray. But anyways, my son was the aggressive patient and I was the de-escalator. Now, mind you, my de-escalation was a little bit different because I'm the mom as well, but I literally legit could see from a personal perspective, someone I know, who I know is kind, smart, intelligent, is not a mean person who doesn't throw, like I saw that person turn into someone who was potentially verbally, at least physically showing signs of aggression. I was embarrassed too, by the way, I was super duper embarrassed. And I was trying to calm him down like the nurses and the doctors are doing as much as they can. Give them a second, honey. You know, your mom's a nurse. I know they're working hard, you know, this and that. And even the security guard noticed it. He's like, hey, man, you know, don't worry. The nurse is going to get to you. Can I get you a sandwich? What's going on? Like, and so they re- they recognized that he was a kid, but still he was still someone who was escalating. And I could tell that the security guard, once my son's like voice started to raise a little bit, for some reason, I noticed him more. Like, I guess he put himself more in the visual side, as he should, as he should, right? To kind of check out like, what's going on here? I know he's a kid, but listen, kids, kids can act violent too. I've seen it in the emergency room, but this is my own flesh and blood, my son. So long story short, he finally got his hand. He finally got the attention that he needed. He started doing x-rays, started doing stuff. And he calmed down. He calmed all the way down. Now, I did tell him about himself when we got left the emergency room. I said, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever do that again. This is what it looked like. This is what you looked like to the staff. And this is what people do to me at work. You wouldn't want someone doing that to mom at work. So I don't want you doing that to other people. So now, obviously, we don't necessarily have that opportunity to give that lesson afterwards to the patients that leave. And unfortunately, some of them never recognize how crappy they were to us. But I say this to say that sometimes the most innocent and unexpecting people can become aggressive. Now, mind you, choking babies, totally uncalled for, totally ridiculous, totally, sir, you need to go to jail. Like, absolutely. But as things get to that point, it's important for us as healthcare professionals to recognize the signs and symptoms that something is brewing something might be happening or because of situational things, I have the insight to know that this is the perfect recipe for a patient to get aggressive. Let me manage up. Let me try to do these things to keep people at calm and at bay. Now I know it sounds like a a bunch of hokey pokey stuff that we got to do when we really are truly out there saving lives, got to get meds, got to get blood sugars, got to hang antibiotics, got to start IVs and all that stuff. I know we got to do that, but sometimes we just got to take a moment to plant the seed to help to create an environment from progressing into something that could be totally worse. It's a juggling act. It's a balancing act. Listen, nurses, I know we got a shitload of things to do. And it's like, damn, one more thing, one more thing. Yeah, it does. But I will say in the grander scheme of things, taking five minutes to deescalate what could potentially be an escalating and violent patient is far more important than being five minutes later on a blood sugar stick. 
five minutes late with an antibiotic, five minutes late with the IV start, unless it's a cold blue, right? It's all about prioritizing and we got to think long game. We have these task lists of things we got to do. We got to check off the task, but I'm going to encourage you and empower you to be a critical thinker, to think broadly, to step back outside of your immediate patient assignment and to look at the unit as a whole to identify, hey, this is something that could potentially go down and impact so many people. Let me take the time to plant the seed and de-escalate this because Truth be told, I don't want to be dealing with no aggressive patients. I ain't got time. Because if you let that happen, it's going to really take up your whole shift and you're not going to have time to hang the blood, the give the antibiotics, give the blood sugars, all, all that stuff. You're not going to have time. Because then now the whole unit's going to be involved with de-escalating this cold gray patient, hopefully not a cold silver. So let's use some judgment. Let's try to identify situations proactively of when a patient might escalate. Even if they haven't, let's manage up so we can prevent those situations. And if you, by all means, even if it's not your patient, notice someone with the body language and doing the behavior and all that stuff that looks like, hey, what's going on, Mr. Patient over there in 17? What's happening? Like, let's identify that and get things in motion because by all means, we want to keep an environment that's safe for the patients. We want to keep an environment that's safe for the staff members. And listen, we don't got time. We don't got time to be dealing with the shenanigans. So let's nip it in the bud and use our critical thinking to identify these and intervene early, guys. Okay. So I started this off with nurses literally fighting to save patients' lives and in the situation physically. I hope it never gets to a point. I hope you never get to a point where you literally have to fight off somebody, right? Because when situations escalate and we try to de-escalate them and they can't, usually somebody's getting taken down. They're getting taken down physically, they're getting taken down with medications and restraints. And listen. I know there are security guards in place, but sometimes the security guards get taken down too. And sometimes it might be you, you might be attacked. You have to be prepared for these things. We didn't get to like the whole realm of what do you do when there's aggressive patient? Like I'm gonna try to deescalate. I'm trying to secure by safety. But listen, if somebody is out here swinging on people, sh- shooting, that's when we also have to think about hiding, running and hiding. I hate to say that, but you know, in this situation, these were infants. The nurses were successful. I'm glad they didn't get hurt or injured, um, at least not too badly if they did. And they were able to save those young infants' lives. But that doesn't always happen. They're not always infants. They're sometimes adults. And sometimes you could be the person that is being attacked. So be mindful of these things. Try to recognize the signs and symptoms early on. And hopefully you can have a safer and happier shift. Guys, I'm Nurse Alice. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Please share this with a family, friend, coworker, uh, work wife, or husband, whoever, you know, nursing student, nursing teacher, your dean, anyone, because like workplace violence is a really major issue. And um, let me know what you thought about it. You know, I know sometimes I don't get to mention everything, so I might have left something out. Share your experience. I like to know what you think, what happened to you. If you have any tips or advice that I didn't mention, we'd love to hear about that. You can leave those in the comments. Hey, rate and review the episode and then leave it there too as well. Or you can email me at Nurse Alice at Nurse Alice at nurse.org. I had to think about it. What was my email, right? Let me know what you think. Um, Let me know about other episodes or topics you want to hear about. And also, if I haven't mentioned this, visit nurse.org. So much wonderful and great information articles on all these things that are happening. Like really, guys, it's like a one-stop shop almost. You can learn about your profession. You can learn about school. You can learn about things that nurses need to know so that we, you know, we can be better. Like things like this, like the juice, the tea, the gossip, as well as things that are happening professionally, politically um, that influence our practice right? 
So make sure you check out nurse.org if you haven't already. Until next time, guys, make good choices, be kind to one another, and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.